see people who want to spend time uh, growing in their faith. And as we are part of a series right uh, now, if you haven't been here in a, in a while, we're on part six. So if you missed the first five parts, I, I honestly think you missed something pretty great, um, not because of, of what I've said, but just the, the responses that uh, people have shared with me just about the, the inspiration to be more than just what our culture calls Christian, but to really be a follower of Jesus. And that's something that we're, that we're looking at over the, uh, the past number of weeks and on from now till Easter. Uh, part of this series has been inspired by a series I heard a, a year ago by Andy Stanley called 90. And it was simply 90 days that they took just following uh, what it looked like to follow Jesus between uh, Christmas and Easter. And so we're looking at similar things. What does it look like to actually follow Jesus? So many would call themselves Christian in our culture, but are we actually following Jesus? That's the question that I've, I've challenged each and every one of us to ask, and not only to ask, but to answer, and then to do something with what that answer is. Uh, we've been studying documents that were based on eyewitness reports. We're not, uh, if for so many think, oh, you know, it's just fairy tales or whatever, how can you trust the gospel? We've talked about that over the last number of weeks. The eyewitness reports, they were writing about something that happened. When we're reading Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account and John's account, those, they're writing because something happened. They weren't writing to make something happen. It's very important to understand that. They, weren't, they, they, they were writing because the resurrection happened, not because they wanted to create a new religion. And so for many people, they look at the Bible and they go, oh, those texts started Christianity. It's the other way around. Christianity is the reason we have those texts at all. Something happened and they wrote about it. It'd be like you, um, it, today if we said, hey, you know the newspaper, we're just going to write the news ourselves and tomorrow that's what we hope will happen. So we're just going to write that, you know, and it, for the news for this week, we're going to write, you know, that there was an accident right in front of the church here. Uh, nobody was hurt, but everybody noticed Kingsway as a result. Uh, and we're going to write that gas is 50 cents a liter. Uh, we're going to write that uh, Justin Bieber is the new prime minister. And the Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. And that is... <sighs> but, but most of you look at me like, all of that is just foolishness. Right? You can't just write something and then that's going to happen. Uh, and yet, so many times we look at the Bible and think, oh, people wrote stuff to create something to happen. It's the other way around. Something really did happen that, that, that affected so many people. They're like, we can't, we can't believe what we've seen. We saw a man crucified, and now we've seen him risen from the dead. <laughs> that is just not possible. That is news. Let's write the account and the stories. And so last week, we looked at how Jesus told people that he was greater than the temple, he was, he was greater than services, and he was greater than, than uh, things that people thought were sacred. Back in the day, they thought sacred was buildings. You know, this was a sacred building, and some of you still think that way. You think this sanctuary is the house of God. Don't run in the house of God, children. Don't smile in the house of God, Deb. Deb. He... That, that's old things. That's old thinking where, you know, the, where buildings were sacred and days of the week were sacred and services were sacred. Jesus was like, you know what? Don't allow your love for these buildings to, and, and these services to actually um, go against the people that the, these services are for, that this religion is for. He said, you know, this is not sacred. You know what's sacred? This is. Every single person you come into contact with, Jesus said, men are sacred. Women, you're sacred. Children, they were not even valued back then. He says, yeah, they're sacred. And we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. He said, fishermen, you're sacred. Tax collectors, you're sacred. 
sacred. You're sitting beside sacred this morning. That's a pretty incredible thing that he ascribed value to. We, we take that for granted. We think that's normal. We think that's common sense. Back then, not common sense. And the reason we find it normal is, is directly related to what Jesus said. And we looked at that last week. And then we looked at a group of people last week called the Pharisees. These guys, also sacred, but they were the ones who loved their temple more than they loved the people that the temple was for. They loved their stones, you know, that they could stone sinners. They loved those stones more than the life of the person who they were against. And we looked at that last week. You can uh, take a listen online. But today we just want to look at a conversation that Jesus had with one of these men. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you have your Bible, to get it out. If you don't have your Bible, but you have a phone, uh, we would love for you to use your phone during the service. Uh, just download the free uh, Bible from Bible app and, uh, and follow along with us. Uh, I, I, I truly believe that God wants to speak to your heart this morning, uh, not, just, not just through my words, but through his. And so if you would turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Not 16. John 3 verse 1. We're start at the beginning of John 3. It says, there was a man named, there was a man named Nicodemus, a real guy. He didn't write, oh, there was some guy in Israel somewhere. They're like, no, John's writing says, here's a detail you can look up. Back then when they're reading his account, Nicodemus may very well have still been alive. But if, if, if he wasn't, they would have said, hey, he's a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And Nicodemus was actually part of a group called the, San, the Sanhedrin, this, or the Sanhedrin, however you pronounce it. But the Sanhedrin was like the, the governing authority of Israel under the governing authority of Rome. So Rome was like, we're going to take care of all the big stuff, but you do all the sort of the smaller stuff in, in each of your towns. And so they had these groups called the Sanhedrin. In Jerusalem, they had the Great Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus was part of that, the Great Sanhedrin, the, the, their government. So uh, just a quick test. How many of you know who this is? Who's that? Ken Hewitt. How many of you know who Ken Hewitt is? Okay, how many of you are in Haldeman County? You know who your mayor is? Shame on you. You're supposed to be praying for that man. Ken Hewitt, he's our mayor. Okay, well, let's try another one. Who's this? Oh, see, it's getting a little louder. A few more people know this fella, Toby Bear, right? He's also, uh, you know, a, a member of parliament. And then we have, anybody know who that is? Okay, a few more. Diane Finley. So these would have been your, these would have been your local uh, Sanhedrin leader, you know, people. They were the ones who kind of governed over, uh, uh, over their different towns and different uh, spaces of, of property. And then there's this guy. Anybody know who this is? <laughs> no, he has a name, and it's not, oh. <laughs> it's Justin, right? So um, everybody, everybody in Canada, love him or hate him, knows this man, Justin. And so when we think about the Sanhedrin and these people, Nicodemus was one of the, the crew that sat in, the, in the, uh, kind of the upper echelon of government. He was one of the people that most of the people, if they heard the name Nicodemus from the Sanhedrin, they would either know his name or they may even know him by face. But he was a, a person that people knew. And so a lot of times you just kind of read right on through and think, oh, okay, a guy named Nicodemus. When they read it, they're like, okay, Nicodemus, yeah, we know who you're talking about. And John says, this man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee from the Sanhedrin, he came to visit Jesus at night. Now, we don't really know why he came at night. Maybe that was the only time he had available, or maybe Jesus, it was hard to have a meeting with Jesus, so he had time at night. Or maybe Nicodemus was like, I don't really know if I want to be associated with this guy, but I do want to have a meeting with him. I have some questions. Regardless of why, it says, John says, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, and he said, Rabbi, which simply means teacher, it's just a term of respect, 
he says something very interesting. The Pharisees say this, we all know, we all know. Here's what, hey Jesus, thanks for meeting me, with me. Here, here's, what, here's what we know about you. Here's what we know about you. We know that God has sent you, for one, uh, and to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. We know God sent you. We know that God is with you. And we know because of the signs that, you've, that, that you do. And signs isn't just miracles. Signs were like pointing to somebody as being different from other people. So, for instance, in the, in the Old Testament, the, there, there was the sign of circumcision. Uh, if you don't know what that is, ask somebody else. But the sign of circumcision was for the Israelites so that people could recognize, wow, they're different from everybody else. It was a sign. The signs of apostleship in the New Testament was these signs that these men were different from everyone else. And they, was, they looked at Jesus and they said, the guy has way too many signs for us to, to realize or not to not realize that he's different from everyone else. And so he came to meet with them and said, Jesus, we know, we know that you're different from everyone else. And I put this one sentence together because I think it helps to understand a little bit about what Nicodemus may have been feeling that night, that he would have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're different than we've experienced. We know you're sent from God, but lots of people were sent from God, but they don't sound like you. You're different from what we've experienced. They don't look like you. They don't sound like you. They definitely didn't talk like you. You're, dif- you're different than we experienced. And you're different than we expected. See, we think maybe you're the Messiah, or you think you are, but we didn't expect the Messiah to sound like you, to say the things you've said. And, and if you're the Messiah, how come you haven't taken over yet? You know, you keep resisting the, the leadership. What's, you, you're not like we ex- experienced. You're not like we expected. And we have a bunch of questions. Nicodemus gets together with Jesus. I have a bunch of questions. We know they had lots of questions because we read about all their questions throughout the rest of uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke's uh, accounts where they t- they, they'd come to Jesus and they'd ask him questions like, who do you think you are? And if you're the Messiah, can you show us some proof that you're the Messiah? And while you're at it, do you think we should pay taxes? You know, or how can I have eternal life, Really? Or what's the greatest law in the commands? And then you even had some that would just try and take Jesus off on bunny trails. He's teaching, and they would ask questions similar to ours. like, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? And, you know, you get into this thing. Uh, they, would, they would ask questions like one, one guy came up and said, Jesus, so you say there's a heaven. We don't believe in there's a heaven, but you say there is. So there was this guy, and he married this woman, and then he died. And so she married his brother. Well, then he died. And then she married his other brother, and he died. And there were seven brothers, and she married all of them, and they all died. If I was the seventh one, I would have like, no. <laughs> Pass. But he says, they, they all married this woman, and then they all died. And so you're saying they all go to heaven. Well, in heaven, well, then who's the actual, like, who's the, whose um, husband is, is, is going to be her husband in, in, in eternity? And Jesus has this clever answer for that, which you're going to have to look up for yourself. So, um... But all these, these questions that they had that would try and distract Jesus. But Nicodemus probably comes with his list of questions. And he gets there and he doesn't even get to ask one. He says, here's what I know about you, Jesus. You're sent from God. And God is with you for sure. And then Jesus stops and says, and yet, you know what? Here's what I know about you. Nicodemus says, maybe stops for a second. And Jesus says in verse 3, he replies. He says, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, okay, well, this wasn't on my list of questions, but what do you mean by that? What do you mean I can't see the kingdom of God? His mind's probably thinking, of course I see the kingdom of God, because they thought the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God were the same thing. 
that was the kingdom of God. He, see, he probably thinks, you know what? <laughs> I'm in the kingdom of God already. But there's something else about that statement that gets him. And he probably chuckles as he, as he asks the next question. He's thinking, Jesus, I know, I know you don't mean it literally, but what do you mean? You know, how can, an, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? That is a funny question. How can that happen? And Jesus replies, he says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. And Nick's like, well, you didn't really answer my question. He's like, you, here you say it again. I can't enter. I'm already in the kingdom of God. What do you mean by this? By this, I have to be born again. And Jesus would have said to him, you don't, you don't understand the kingdom I'm talking about isn't just the kingdom of Israel. I didn't come to be part of that kingdom. I came to start something brand new. It's what we've been looking at ever since session one. Something brand new. He says, you were born into this kingdom, but you've got to be born into both. You have to be born into both. Where does that relate to today? Today, we have so many people in our culture that call themselves Christian. And you ask them, why are you a Christian? I was born into a Christian family. And Jesus would say, you're halfway there. You need to be born into both. Just because you were born into a church-going family does not mean you are a Christian. And for so many, that's that thought. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I was born into a Christian family. I go to, I go to church. He says, you're only halfway there. Jesus begins to take Nick, from, we'll call him Nick, it's easier, from what he knows to what he doesn't know. He's saying, Nick, this is some of the stuff you know, but here's what you don't know yet. So he starts by explaining some things he does know. He says, Nick, humans give birth, or it can, only, it can reproduce only human life. Basically, Jews give birth to Jewish people. Roman people give birth to Roman people. Greeks give birth to Greek. He says, you know, Nick, I'm not sure if you're married, but if you, know, you and your wife are expecting a baby, you're not expecting to give birth to a rabbit. You know, it's going to be a human. He's like, okay, I'm tracking, I follow. He says, but the Holy Spirit is what gives birth to spiritual life. So human can only give birth to human. This idea of being born again, it's not a human thing. It's something bigger than that. It's something deeper. The Holy Spirit is the one who can do that. Then he goes in verse 7. So don't be surprised. That word is like, don't wonder, don't marvel. Like, don't, don't be so confused by this. He says, when I say that you must be born again or a second time. He says, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it wants. And when he uses that word wind, it's actually the word pneuma. It's a Greek word. He says, the wind or the pneuma blows wherever it wants. And just as you can hear that wind or the pneuma, you can't tell where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. And so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. But he uses the exact same word, pneuma. He says, the wind and the Spirit, they're, very, they're, the, they're the same. The same word. He's like, he says, that's, he's, he's Nicodemus, wind, when you think of wind, and when you think of the Spirit, he says, you, you don't see it, but you see it. He's like, well, what is it? Okay, you don't see it, but you see it. He said, well, I'm not sure. Well, for instance, same for us. We can see the leaves blowing. You can't see the wind in this picture, but you can see the effect of the wind. You know, you can't see the wind in this picture, but you can see the effect of the wind. You don't see the wind in this picture, but you see evidence that there was some wind. And that's what he's saying when the Spirit affects you. When you're born of the Spirit, you might not see it, but you see it. There's evidence that something happened on the inside of you. So many Christians, it's like just an outside thing. You know, I'm a Christian because I go to church. And he's like, that's not what it is. He's like, if there's no evidence that something changed on the inside, that you became alive to God, you are not a Christian. 
You are not a Jesus follower. You might call the, call the word Christian, but he says something's got to come alive and will come alive on the inside. Nick's still a little bit confused. He says, how is this possible? How, how did I miss this? I've been studying my whole life. How did I, I miss this? And maybe like you, Nick's a little confused, but he's open. He's not like, that's it. I didn't come to get answered those questions. Why are we talking about going back in my mom's womb? I, that's not my question. You know, you're not answering my questions and leaves. He doesn't leave. He's just like, the question, how did, how did I miss this? Jesus, Jesus replies in verse 10. You're a respected Jewish teacher. People look up to you, Nick. You're one of the top 70. And you don't understand this yet? He says, I'm telling you the truth that we tell you what we know and what we've seen. I tell you what I know and what I've seen. And yet, you won't believe our testimony. And he's speaking to them as a group. You group of the Sanhedrin, the group of the Pharisees. I'm trying to tell you what I've seen and what I know to be true. And yet, you don't believe me. He says, if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, when I explain to you about human gives birth to human, when I explain, you know, this is how wind works, or that the fact that you can see the wind without actually seeing it, if, if, you don't, if you don't trust me when I tell you those things, how can you possibly trust me or believe if I tell you about heavenly things? And then he says in verse 13, he says, Nick, no one that you know has ever gone to heaven and returned, right? He's like, that's right. Everybody who's died stayed dead. That's what they do. So he says, so anybody who really tells you about heaven, they're guessing. They're guessing, but, but not me. He says, the Son of Man, which is another term for Messiah, he says, I came down from heaven. So I'm not telling you just stuff that I think. He says, I know because I've seen. Well, Nicodemus can't even, he doesn't really even know what to think about it. He's, he's kind of confused still. And so, and so Jesus finds common ground with Nick in this statement. John chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. The Son of Man's come down from heaven and is Moses, as Moses. And Nick's like, I know Moses. Okay, tell me about Moses. And he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. And we read that in our North American, you know, good Sunday morning service. And we just like, right on by. Anybody know that story? A few of you who went to Sunday school, maybe. He says, but, but Nicodemus, he says to him, Nick, you know the story about Moses and the bronze serpent? He's like, know it. Like, I memorized it. I taught that story in kids' church just last weekend. He's like, that's the, that's the story. I, I know the story of Moses. See, but you, you might not know it. What's really cool is you actually do have the opportunity to read that story for yourself. If you go to Numbers chapter 21, it's the beginning of the, the Old Testament, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures. You can read um, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. You can read Numbers 21 and read that whole account. But here's the Cole's note version of it. The children of Israel were traveling through the desert. And as they were traveling, they were, they were grumbling against God. They were angry. And all of a sudden, snakes started coming out of every, all of these places uh, and began to bite them. They were poisonous snakes, and people started dying. Thousands of people started dying. And they, they ran to Moses, and they're like, Moses, Moses, do something. Pray for us. You know, these snakes keep biting us, and we're dying. And God, Moses prays, and God says to Moses, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some bronze and I want you to fashion a snake, a serpent out of bronze and I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to put that pole and set it up in the highest place possible so that when people are bit by the snakes, that they can come over there and all they have to do is look. If they'll simply just look at that snake on the pole, they'll be healed. He's like, I'm not just going to just heal everyone. You know, the people are, have been bitten and whatever, whether it was their fault or, or not. He's like, I'm not just healing everyone. 
They've got to do something. They've got to come and they've got to look. Nicodemus is like, yeah, I know the story. I know the story. Jesus says, Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, just like he put it up on that pole, so the Son of Man has to be lifted up on a pole as well. And, and he says in the, in the next verse, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And Nicodemus would be just scratching his head thinking about this. He's like, what do you, what do you mean? You're saying the Son of Man, you're saying the Messiah that we've been waiting for is going to be hung on a pole? He's like, Jesus, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 says that anybody who's hung on a pole is cursed. The Messiah is supposed to be the most blessed person ever, and you're saying that he's going to hang in a place of the cursed? And what do you mean by eternal life? We get eternal life by keeping the law. Why are you saying that now we're going to have to, we're going to, have to believe in you know, the Son of Man on a pole? That just doesn't make any sense. Jesus, this is not what we expected. You're pointing to a suffering Messiah, and we want a conquering Messiah. I, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And what's interesting to note is that John stops the story here. He was telling the story and saying, hey, here's the conversation. And then he, he stops for a minute. And it's almost like he stops for this reason. He's like, you know what, Nicodemus missed Jesus' point, but I don't want my readers to miss it. I don't want you sitting here this morning. He's like, I don't want you to miss the point. It's like a spoiler alert. He's like, I'm going to tell you how the end of the whole story uh, happens. I'm going to tell you what happens at the, at the end. Nick didn't get it, but we, we should have. And he, so he writes the most famous words of Scripture. See, the thing is, most of what Jesus taught didn't make sense until after the resurrection. When they, they heard stuff, it's like, what do you mean? You're going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. And then he died and rose from the dead after three days. And like, oh, that's what he meant. You know, he, when he said he's going to conquer death, they're like, we don't get that. And then he rose from the dead. And they're like, okay, we get that. Same for Nicodemus. He's going to be raised up on a pole. I'm like, I don't get that. But then John says, John writes these words that survived persecution they survived the empire. They survived the Sanhedrin. They survived thousands of years. Translated into English for our benefit this morning, it says this, for this, for this is how God loved the world. And for many of you who know it, for God so loved. Man, those words. John says to the, to the reader, he's like, Listen, for God so loved the world. Nick didn't get it. He thought God loved Israel, but God loves the world. He loves each and every single person. That, that's what he, he loves. He says, just leave that up there, please. He said, God so loved the world that he gave. Why? Because giving is what demonstrates love. When you love somebody, you give. That's a demonstration of what love really is. Love's not a feeling. Love's a giving of yourself. And he says, he gave the greatest gift. He gave his only son because the world was perishing. He says, but he gave it so that everyone, not just Jewish people, anyone, who believes in. And that little word right there, John had this written in Greek. It wasn't written in Hebrew. It wasn't written in Aramaic because it wasn't just for Jewish people. It was written in Greek, which was the language of the whole empire. And he says, those who believe in, well, that's just bad Greek grammar. Uh, they don't have a word for trust. And they never put these two words together. They would put believes that. But John doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, everyone who believes that there was a God so often, are you a Christian? Yep. How come? I believe there's a God. John's like, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, I didn't believe something. 
Oh, I believe that, you know, those stories happened. I believe that some of that. He's like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something much, much stronger than that. He says, I'm saying someone who trusts in to the point where it's like whoever bets their life on it, whoever bets their life on it, he says, whoever bets their life on it, on him, will not be lost to God, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Ever think of things that you bet your life on? You know, do do we really believe to the point where like, I don't just believe up here, I bet my life on this thing? See, we're not used to that in North America at all. Except for, there's lots of things that we believe are good, and we don't do at all. Here, here's, a different, here's a different example for it. For instance, this. Healthy life. Most of us believe that this, a lot of these things are good for us. For instance, exercise regularly. Show of hands. How many believe that that's good for us? Exercise regularly. How many of you exercise regularly this week? <laughs> well, you're not betting your life on it, are you? No, you're just like, that's a good idea, but I'm not, I'm not actually going to do it. So do I really believe that it's good for me? In our term of belief, yes, but not in the trust in term that John's talking about. You know, do we believe that we should eat healthy? Yes, I believe that. Do I bet my life on it? If you've been to Tim Hortons, McDonald's, or anything in the last month, you do not bet your life on it. Eat less red meat, and you're just like, yeah, I believe that, on your way to the keg. You, 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 you don't bet your life on it. You think it's a good idea, but you're not betting your life on it. To be fair, what about drink plenty of water? Like, I drink eight glasses of water. It's called coffee. Every day, sometimes by noon. That's not betting my life on it. I think it's a great idea, but I'm not betting my life on it. Reduce stress? <laughs> That's a great idea. But am I betting my life on it? See, we, we, we've done way too much of this when it comes to Christianity. We're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, it's a, I, I memorized it. For God so loved the world, gave his only son. I know it. But have you bet your life on it? Does it grab you here? It's just something. And as John's writing this, he says, those who bet their life on it, meaning I'm so committed to this, that there's nothing else. This is what it is all about. I am following him. And then in verse 17, he says this, one more thing, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world. He didn't send his world to all the, didn't send his son to the broken people and say, I got a lecture for you guys. You know, look at the mess you got yourself into. If you'd only listened to me, you wouldn't have got in there. Slap, slap, slap here. Try a little bit better. It's like, he didn't. We do that. I do that sometimes. Tempted to look at people like, huh. You made your own bed. Should have known better. Parents do that to kids. But Jesus didn't. He came in and saw train wrecks of lives, an accident scene, and just started working to make things different. He says, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't want anybody to be lost to God. And John would say, you know, we should have learned from it. And we should have seen it, but we didn't. We should have known, like, I was like at the beginning of the letter, look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John said it, look, there's the Lamb of God. We should have got it, but we didn't. We didn't. And yet, it's so simple. It's so simple. What John was saying in John 3, verse 16, what he's saying that is so, so simple. Here's the good news. It's this. Number one, God loved. This is something I'm putting up here, not just so you get to read it, but maybe you'll remember because there's people around you that need to hear this. 
When they come and talk to you and think that, you know, they don't even know what to do with life. Hey, you know what? God loves you. Yeah, well, I'm not a really good person. doesn't matter. He loves you. Yeah, I haven't been to church in a long time. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loved you before you were here. God loves you so much that God gave. God loves. God gave. He says those are the things that God's already done. See, Christianity is not this thing about D-O. It's not about stuff you have to do. It's about D-O-N-E, that it's already done. He says God already loved. He already gave his son for you. What's your part? Because you do play a part. It is this thing that you believe. You trust in. You bet your life on the fact that God loves you and God gave his son for you. And I'm like, I'm living the rest of my life for him. I'm trusting in. I'm betting my life on him that he is my savior. Not me. Not my good behavior. Not the fact that I was in church. On him. On, his cro- on the cross. I trust that. And I receive salvation. God loved. God gave. We believe. We receive so, so simple. Any child could do it, yet so difficult for so many adults to embrace. So simple, any child could do it. So difficult for so many adults to embrace. John doesn't tell us. So we just go back to the Nick's conversation with Jesus as we close. Nick, uh, he probably came with a lot of questions, but you know, John doesn't tell us what the rest of the conversation was that night. But there are a few clues to see that something that they talked about that night stuck with Nick. Something that stuck with them. Even though he had all these questions, four chapters later, you can read in John chapter 7 that the crowds were wondering about the Messiah. They were like marveling. They're like, we think he's the Messiah. And others are like, no, he's a fraud. They're like, how can a fraud do this many miracles? They're like, we don't know, he's a fraud. And they're like, he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to have signs. And they're like, you think somebody's going to do more signs than this guy? And the Pharisees are listening back and forth and like, we don't care if he is or if he isn't. He's popular and we don't like it. We want him arrested. And they try and arrest him multiple times. They're like, you guys think he's a fraud? Arrest him. And they're like, we're not touching him, just in case. You know, and then they're like, you know, the Romans, hey, these guys are all following him. You arrest him. Like, we're not bothering ourselves with all of that. So finally, the, the, the Sanhedrin they don't want to arrest Jesus because the crowds will be so angry at them for doing it. So they tried to arrest him three times and it didn't work. And so finally they send the temple guards. They send the, the henchmen to go arrest Jesus. Like, go arrest him and bring him in. Here's what he says in John chapter 7, verse 45. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, this group said, why didn't you bring him in? And what do they say? Well, we've never heard anyone speak like this. Like, you didn't tell us that he, was, that he talked in such a way that just affected our lives. We've never, we're not touching him. And here's what the Pharisees, here's what the Sanhedrin's response was. Verse 47, have you guys been led astray too? Verse 48, is there a single one of us, he said to the, to, the, to the guards, is there a single one of us, the Sanhedrin, is there a single one of us that believes that, uh, that, believes that he is, or that believes in him? What an interesting question for one of the Sanhedrin who happens to be there to overhear. Nick would have been there as he hears them saying, is there any one of us who believes? Sit at the back. Well I, well, I might. I might. Then the leaders say to the guards, you know, this foolish crowd that follows him, they're ignorant of the law and God's curse is on all of them. And then Nicodemus pipes up and just sticks his hand up and says, the leader who met with Jesus, he says this. So the, the crowd, they don't understand the law, eh? 
what about us? Is it actually lawful for us to arrest him without a hearing? Like, what's wrong with you, Nicodemus? You in on that too? You think, are you from Galilee where he's from? No prophets come from Galilee. What's wrong with you, Nicodemus? But what does it show us? Something's turning in there. Something's turning there that maybe, maybe this man is someone other than who we have thought he was. Well, the Sanhedrin's jealousy and anger finally caused them to do whatever was necessary to arrest Jesus. They hired one of Jesus' disciples to betray him, meaning Judas, tell us when Jesus is away from the crowd. We don't want to arrest him in front of the crowd. Tell us when we can find him when he's alone. We know the story. Judas said for 30 pieces of silver, I'll I'll tell you when, when he's alone. And one night as Jesus was praying in a garden with his disciples, Judas came and said, he's by himself and here's where he is. The guards went to go get him. Sanhedrin went and they took Jesus that night and they had a mock trial. They, they, they tried Jesus in the middle of the night with no witnesses, which was against their law, but they loved their law more than people. He says, and once they tried him, they realized that they had condemned him to be guilty. And then the next morning, the whole Sanhedrin convened. They all got there and there's Jesus. And they said, we found him guilty last night. What are we going to do about this? And they said, he's got to die. I'm like, well, we're not allowed to kill him. Only Rome can kill him. So how do we get Rome to kill him? Well, let's tell Rome that he thinks he's the new king of the Jews. Let's, let's t- tell them he's starting a rebellion and uprising. He's not. But let's just tell them that. And so they got out there. And as the crowds were gathering that hot, you know, sunny morning, there's Jesus standing there. And, and they say to the Roman officers, this man's inciting a rebellion. And Pilate tries him and talks to him. And the Pilate's the, the, the man from Rome. He says, this guy's innocent. He's not done anything. We'll look at Pilate later on. Because he hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything. And they're like, we don't care. We want him dead. Crucify him. He's like, I'm not crucifying him. And they're like, hey, cheer, crucify him. This is going to be awesome. Crucify him. And so they stir up the whole crowd to scream, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So they get what they wanted. And a few hours later, after Jesus has been whipped till he's barely recognizable as a man, he's led out through the gates of Jerusalem to be executed just outside the gates. As Jesus walks along, Nick was probably there. The Sanhedrin was responsible for this. They were going to be there to make sure it finished the way that they had wanted it, but he didn't think so. He's like, I knew that this man was sent from God. I knew that God was with him, so why is this happening? Why is it ending like this? This doesn't make any sense at all. You know, as they're standing there at the spot where Jesus is being crucified, maybe Nick's at the back of the crowd, and as he looks at the heads of all the people in front of him, he's just kind of watching as this crucifixion is happening, And all of a sudden, they begin, after they've nailed Jesus to the cross, they begin to lift the cross up from the ground. And as he's watching over, he sees the cross being lifted up and set into that hole in the ground or being lifted up and nailed to the pole that he was on. And it clicks. This is what he told me three years ago. Three years ago that night, he said, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be lifted up on a pole. That whoever looks at him will be saved, that whoever trusts in him, whoever bets their life on him, would be saved, would have eternal life. You can imagine that moment affecting Nicodemus in an incredibly uh, real way. He may not have been fully convinced at that point that Jesus was the Son of God, but he knew he was an important man. And he knew he didn't deserve to be crucified. He knew that he deserved an honorable burial. And so Nick and Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to talk about those guys later too, Joe from Arimathea, a rich man went to Pilate and said, can we have his body? Can we have his body? Well, the Romans never gave crucified victims an honorable burial. They were crucified because they were not honorable. They left their bodies to rot on crosses 
as an as a, as a example for others to not rebel. But they said, can we have his body? And they talked Pilate into it. And then they took Jesus' body. It says they took 75 pounds of spices. Maybe they had some help. And they embalmed his body and they put it into a brand new tomb. A new tomb that had never been used before. They had that tomb sealed. They didn't, but the, 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 the Sanhedrin, who was paranoid about this, this Jesus, had that sealed with, by Roman authority with a Roman guard. That tomb was covered with a large stone and protected by Roman guards. And yet, three days later, that same tomb would be empty. That same tomb would be empty. And John wrote about it. And he says, you know what? <laughs> because of an empty tomb, we know that everything that he said is legit. And so what about you and what about me this morning? How does this intersect with our lives and the lives of those around us? Maybe you're here this morning. And as we've talked, you realize, you know what? I, I may have called myself Christian, but I don't fit that description. I, I, I feel like I'm a lot like Nick. I just got a lot of questions. I'm not, I'm not so sure about all this. You know, when I hear about Jesus this morning, it's not what I expected. I kind of expected that this thing was like, you know, about religion or like about some rules you have to follow. Um, maybe I thought it was like, you know, those sort of stories are just fairy tales. I, I didn't expect that this was real and that it affects my life. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, you know what, that's not what I've experienced before. Maybe you've been to church before and all it was was hypocritical people looking down on you. You felt judged. Maybe Jesus, this idea that God loves you is just not what you expected, not what you experienced. And you wonder, is it real? Is it true? Is it real? Is it true? Can it possibly be? There's something here that's just stirring. Can I suggest to you that that is the wind this morning? That is the Spirit of God tugging on your heart to embrace something that's real? He didn't give his life on a cross so people could just sit in seats on Sunday mornings. He came to change your life. He came that you might have life that you might have it in abundance. He came that you might have relationship with God. How do we know? John wrote at the very beginning. He said this in verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Verse 12, but to who? All. His own people rejected him, but to all, to anyone who trusted in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become Christians become religious, to become better people, to become hypocrites? No. To become children, children of God in relationship with God of, of the universe. And he says in this next thing, they are reborn. They are born a second time. Something happens inside that changes. It is not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but it's a birth that comes from God. So this morning, the same message that God gave to Nick, that Jesus gave to Nick, is the same message for you this morning. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, can I tell you something? That this should be just emblazoned into your, into your heart and mind because as a Christian, like Brian said at the very beginning, you've been called to make disciples. You have. Not just, oh, the pastor at the front, he's the one who's, who's going to go make disciples. You have. Wherever you go, there are people who need to hear these four thoughts. God loves. God loves. You're at the farmer and the guy picking up the milk. He needs to know that God, God loves. You're working at U.S. Steel and people are handing around dirty pictures during the lunch break. 
God loves. God loves that woman on that phone, but God also loves you for pass, even though you're passing it around. God loves. You work at the Holiday Pregnancy Care Center, a single young girl comes in. God loves. God loves. God loves. They need to hear it. God loves you so much that he gave. He's not just a, this little thing, oh, God has, has feelings for you. God loves you so much. He sacrificed his life for you so you could have life. But he's asking you to bet your life on it. <laughs> See, the cost of following Jesus is greater than most of us have been taught. He's saying, bet your life on it. I did. I bet my life on you. He's like, I'm challenging you to come follow me. Bet your life on me to follow me. And then to receive the greatest gift of true life true salvation, purposeful life, fearless life, a life with God. That is on the table for you this morning, and it requires just simply trusting in him. It's not a prayer. It is a change of heart, saying, God, I leave what I've lived life myself. I've lived my own way. God, I'm not doing that anymore. I can't do it for me, but you can, and I will bet my life on that. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for this, this morning for those who are here in this place, not by accident, but I believe because you have them here. Father, I thank you for your words, that they are much more powerful than mine, that they're sticking in the heart right now and in the minds of people you love dearly. Father, I pray for those who don't know you this morning here. Lord, I, I, I pray that those words would go with them this week they can't help but just be aware of your love for them and your desire for them, you drawing on them. Pray you give them courage to take that first step, to simply trust you and walk with you. And Lord, for us who've been Christian, as you call us to follow you, Lord, may this week, may that just become more and more real. As we're challenged with wanting to go our way and your way, that we would choose your way because we've bet our lives on it. Father, thank you. Thank you for the assurance that it is not just for this life, but that we have eternal life as a result. What an incredible gift you've given. May we just live our lives in response to that this week. And may you be greatly praised as a result. It's in your awesome name I pray. Amen.